Hello, my name's Ken Barrett. Welcome to Brainland Podcast number 12. In George Orwell's novel 1984, Winston Smith observes that in his society, nothing was your own except the few cubic centimetres inside your skull. In this podcast, we'll explore if, in lighter developments in neurotechnology, all that might be about to change. Are we at risk of brain hacking? And if so, what should be done about it? Marcello Ienka is Professor of Ethics of Artificial Intelligence and Neuroscience at Munich University and Group Leader of the Intelligent Systems Ethics Group at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. In other words, a leader in this new field of neuroethics. And I'm delighted that he's agreed to join us on the podcast. Hi, Marcello. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for, for joining us on the on the podcast. Where are you at the minute? Are you in Germany or...? or... Yes, I am, I am in Munich right now. And uh, I don't know if I can show you, but we are in a kind of a winter wonderland. Oh, wow. <laughs> a lot of snow here. Oh, how lovely. Where are you based? Um, I live in Sussex, in uh, in um, the, near near Brighton's the usual place that people know. In, in okay, yes, I know. I know Brighton. Actually, it's a great uh, place for uh, neuroscience. Um, yeah, well, well, thanks so much for um, for joining us. I mean, to begin with, you've got yourself at the cutting edge of neuroethics, neuro law. Can we talk a bit about your background and how you uh, how you get to be in this position? Um, yeah, of course. So. Um... I think one way to summarize my background is that I was always interested in minds and uh, how they work. I was very interested in minds at a uh, narrow uh, level of uh, neurobiological functioning, and that's why I got interested in neuroscience. And uh, But I was also interested in the high-level uh, philosophical questions about the nature of the mind and mental ontology. So I studied philosophy and neuroscience in parallel in Rome, where I'm originally from, um, as well as in Berlin. Um, then I went to uh, New York for, actually funded through student bursary, that uh, scholarship that was uh, funding interdisciplinary research in neuroscience and philosophy. So I had the chance to work in a cognitive neuroscience lab and at the same time to uh, to chat with uh, prominent philosophers like Dave Chalmers, um, and then I returned to Europe, uh, pursuing a PhD in biomedical ethics, uh, because during that time, I also got interested in the ethical implications of uh, brains and minds. And uh, soon I realized that you cannot uh, understand something entirely until you're able to build it or simulate it. Uh, so that's when I got interested in artificial intelligence. And ultimately, my PhD was on AI applications in clinical neuroscience and the ethics thereof. Uh, I focus primarily on um, AI uses for people with cognitive decline, um, as well as uh, brain-computer interfaces. Um, and then after my, my PhD, I continued working as a, as a researcher. I founded my lab called Intelligent Systems Ethics, in 2021 at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. And earlier this year, I moved to Munich where I'm a professor of ethics of uh, AI and neuroscience. Wow. So I think that's pretty much the journey. 
Yeah, so kind of man and boy, you've you've, you've mixed the two uh, disciplines. Is is your post in Munich a new one? Because it sounds very sort of cutting edge, really. The position did not exist before. Yes, no, it's... Yeah. right. Well, and as we're dealing with philosophical political issues, I mean, do you come at this from a particular standpoint? You know, to quote a phrase, "What truth do you hold self-evident?" Really, that um, gives you a take on this. Well, in all frankness, I do not hold any truth as self-evident. Right. Um, I don't think that our mind has evolved for truth. Uh, it has evolved for adapting to the environment. Um, I, I think uh, Anil, Anil Seth, the neuroscientist actually based in Sussex, has uh, put it beautifully, he said that our mind is constantly hallucinating. And when we agree on the hallucination, we call it reality. Right. <laughs> um, in in fact, you know, all knowledge we have is intermediated by the sensory information that we receive and how the sensory information is processed in a predictive way uh, by by our conscious mind. And uh, I think there is uh, limited knowledge we can gain. Of course, I'm a, a strong believer in the power of science, and I do think that things like logic and mathematics may um be uh real ontologists outside of our mind but frankly i cannot rule out the possibility that the entire world is a virtual simulation run somewhere by a kid of the future um so i do not hold any truth as self-evident but um i do think that uh, science is the best way we have to produce knowledge and i also uh, don't believe in moral relativism. So although I do not think that there are absolute moral truths, um, I think that uh, we, in, in a democratic society, we can uh, lead, we can reach conclusions on moral deliberations that go beyond uh, the mere fragmentation of subjective perspectives. Okay, well, that's a great answer. Okay. Um, so, there have been great advances in neuroimaging related technology in the last 30 years, but so much about how the brain works, even in the most basic level, still evades us. What particular developments persuade you that we should be concerned about uh, this subject right now? Well, so I'm not sure if that, that concern is the best way to characterize that. I, I, there are certainly things that raise concerns, but there are also great opportunities. So neuroimaging is basically a very broad umbrella term that we use to refer to any technologies that can record uh, activity in the brain. And we need to record and measure activity in the brain because we cannot cure what we cannot measure. So currently there's little we know about the brain. Um, there's little we know about brain function. Um, so we need to develop technologies that can uh, expand our understanding of the inner workings of the human brain and mind and uh, use that information to develop tailored solutions for the hundreds of millions of people in need. And, and in fact, uh, we should remind ourselves that currently there are several hundreds of millions of people with neurological disorders. By 2050, it's expected that one third of the global population will experience at least one neurological disorder in their lifetime. And one in two will experience at least one mental illness in their lifetime. So the, the brain is a major component of the global burden of disease, and we need better technology 
um, to to understand and uh, and cure the brain. Um, that being said, um, I, I think we we see um, three uh, main developments. So the, the first development in neuroimaging goes back to the 1970s uh, and 1980s. And um, that's the time when technologies such as functional magnetic resonance imaging uh, came along, which are the, the first technologies that really allowed us to understand in real time the activation of uh, brain regions in response to certain tasks, uh, which is a net, uh, quite necessary element, uh, quite necessary technology to understand the functioning uh, of the brain. And then we we had a quite interesting uh, developments at the hardware level. So we developed scans, brain scans that were increasingly more accurate and and powerful. Uh, but at some point, I think the development at the hardware level plateaued. Uh, and what we're seeing in recent years is an incredible development at the uh, software level, uh, thanks to artificial intelligence. So machine learning and in particular deep learning are revolutionizing the way we can analyze brain data. And uh, they are also revolutionizing the way we can actually understand the brain. So for a long time in neuroscience, we were doing what is called a, a direct inference. So we were having people perform a certain task and in the same at the same time, we were monitoring what was happening in their brains so we could see what areas of the brains were associated or particularly responsible for that task. Uh, but then with AI, we can now do what we call a reverse inference. We can just look at the real brain data and use them to reconstruct uh, the uh, activation that is associated with that, including the visual or semantic content of mental states that are associated with the brain activation. And, uh, and then I think the third trend is using uh, neuroimaging technologies, not just to uh, record activity uh, for diagnostic or monitoring purposes, but also for um, action-oriented uh, activities or goal-oriented action, I would say. And that's the field of brain-computer interfaces. So BCIs are technologies that can establish a direct communication pathway between the human brain and an external computer device in a manner that bypasses the neuromuscular system so that people can control that device solely with brain activity. And uh, BCIs uh, use activity, use basic technologies to record activity in the brain, either invasively through intracortical uh, recordings, for example, or non-invasively, such as through electroencephalography. And then this brain data are used uh, our process classified uh, and used to generate an output, which can be the remote control of, of a device, such as a robotic limb for people, for amputees, or it can be, you know, a computer cursor for people with paralysis that, um, and these technologies are extremely powerful for, for people with disabilities because it can, they can allow them to restore some um, ability to interact with the world outside. We spoke about that in the last podcast as well, but this is in the context of military funding of, of uh, brain-computer interfaces and, and how you may be able to, you know, somebody may be able to control 
a plane or, or some other weapon really without having to go through your your, your motor system but you know, obviously the stuff that you're talking about is is the thing we hear about more uh, readily and and the, the other thing is is in one of your papers you you also talk about uh, deep brain stimulation and um this has been around for also over 30 years and and gradually getting more and more acceptance and uh, is is that in some way a threat too? Do you think? I mean, can you be hacked that way if you're if you're if you're wired in in this way? Yeah, so it's, I'm glad you're um, you're referring to different simulation because so what I said before, it's actually only one of the two main things that brain computer interfaces can do. So they can read out from the brain, they can record brain activity, but then they can also write into the brain. So they can use neuromodulation or neurostimulation to influence or alter brain activity. And deep brain stimulation is one of this neurostimulation techniques. It's an invasive one that involves implanting electrodes deep in the brain, hence the name. Uh, and sending electrical current to targeted brain regions. And in the last few years, this has become uh, an extremely effective treatment, for example, for people with Parkinson's disease, uh, but more recently also for psychiatric patients, such as patients with treatment-resistant depression. Uh, but I think if we now want to move to the concerns, I, I think what is um, interesting to monitor from, from an ethical perspective is that both BCIs to read out from the brain and neurostimulation techniques to write into the brain are no longer confined only within the domain of clinical medicine and neuroscience research, but we, we are seeing them um, kind of uh, spill over into a variety of uh, consumer-grade applications, especially on the brain reading side. There is a vast ecosystem of direct-to-consumer technologies that use non-invasive recordings for purposes like entertainment, uh, stress reduction, gaming, uh, social media communication, um, smartphone gadgets, and so on. Uh, and uh, these are way less regulated than the applications that we use in the clinics. Well, so how and do they work? Is that, are we talking about something like galvanic skin response or, or some physiological measure that are you, you know, biofeedback been around a long while, hasn't it? To, there's a sort of um, a device you could use to tell you what's going on in your body and, and help you try and control it sort of thing. Yes. So the, for example, the, the brain computer interfaces used for gaming, they're just uh, associating patterns of brain activity with uh, virtual tasks. So action oriented, Oh, right. uh, um, performance in in the game um, so that you can basically just replace the joystick or the keyboard as your primary way to interact with your virtual avatar. Um, on on uh, other applications, for example, I mentioned some companies advertise products for stress reduction or meditation. Uh, actually, the evidence is quite scarce <laughs> that they can achieve these goals, but they market that uh, they make these market claims nonetheless, um, and this use uh, neurofeedback. Uh, oh, Alpha rhythms is one thing, isn't it? With that, and then the yeah. EEG, uh, yeah. Um, but then, besides the consumer domain, there is uh, the military and um, uh, national security, and I would also add the law enforcement domain. 
So the brain is a goldmine for many stakeholders, um, including uh, the military. There are several military organizations around the world that are conducting research on uh, brain-computer interfaces for uh, brain recording and for brain alteration, uh, sometimes with very legitimate purposes, such as treating soldiers who return from the battlefield with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but sometimes with more questionable purposes, such as uh, enhancing the cognitive performance of combatants, for example, making them capable to operate on the battlefield uh, while sleep deprived, um, and um, maintaining high through bimodal neuro, uh, brain recording and neuromodulation, their concentration levels, um, and and so on. And then um, law enforcement, you know, brain reading has been always a dream yeah. Yeah. Uh, in uh, in the field of um, law enforcement. So lie detectors uh, um, a few years ago were only based on galvanic responses. Uh, but of course, there is this general idea that if we can uh, develop lie detectors based on brain information, we're actually accessing the information at the source, so to say. And that's still some way off legally, isn't it, really? So I know it's been used in, in obviously in, in for individual judges who might pass muster, but uh, it, 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 it's still uh, fairly controversial, isn't it, and the sort of lie detection? Lie detection per se is still fairly controversial, although there have been several studies that have shown the increasing capabilities of uh, uh, brain biomarkers uh, for lie detection. Um, so it, it's it's not sci-fi that technology has improved okay. uh, a lot over the last few years. Their application in in uh, in judicial processes is very questionable. Uh, it is happening once in a while here and there in the world. There was a, a very controversial court case in India a few years ago where a woman was convicted based on um, one of these uh, lie detectors. Um, but um, overall, um, my, my colleague Nida Farhani, for example, has conducted research on, on this and she has... Uh, uh, done a meta-analysis that shows that the uh, frequency uh, of uh, brain-based measurements as evidence in court has going has been going oh, up. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's a metric of it too. Really. Yeah, I mean, we talk about ethics, but I mean, you, you've taken this a step further uh, in regard to the legal implications and, and specifically human rights that you feel existing law doesn't quite cover these new technological developments. So what rights are we talking about in, in, in this context? Yeah, I do not see ethics and human rights as, as uh, fundamentally disconnected. So human rights uh, are both rights in the moral philosophical sense and rights in, in the legal sense of international uh, human rights law. Um, and I, I think the, the main reason why I think that uh, addressing the ethical issues of brain technology is also a human right issue is that the brain is not an organ like any other. It's not like your spleen or liver. Uh, it's the fundamental coordinating center of vital functions, uh, processes like blood circulation, respiration, and so on. And most importantly, uh, it is the uh, fundamental coordination side and enabler of mental faculties such as consciousness, language, memory, 
all the things that make us human. Uh, and therefore, if we develop technologies that can read out from the brain and interfere with the brain, uh, then we are developing technologies that can fundamentally uh, expose and interfere with what it means to be a human, fundamentally. Um, and so this is the reason why, uh, together with, with the legal scholar and legal philosopher, Roberto Andorno, a few years ago, we developed this notion of neurorights, uh, which was basically a, a framework trying to address the human rights implications of emerging neurotechnologies. And we, we identified four main domains of relevance, uh, of significance here. One is related to the self-determination of mental processes, what we call cognitive liberty. Um, the other one is related to the protection of information in our minds, what we call mental privacy. Um, third one is protection from um, mental harm, what we call mental integrity. And the third one is uh, what we call psychological continuity, which is basically the, um, the protection of our identity um, or of a personal identity from external uh, perturbations. Can we can we unpack them in turn then? Because they're quite complex, aren't they? So, what is what exactly is cognitive liberty, and how might it be compromised in the near future? I mean, one of your papers you used the term brain jacking. I think it was uh, uh, to to talk about this really. Yeah. So, cognitive liberty is uh, a term that has been uh, debated in uh, neuroethics for the last two decades, and we define it as basically the right and ability of everyone um, to uh, decide for themselves uh, whether how to influence their brains um, and or to refuse to do so. So it's both a positive and a negative, right? So it's that's why it's often been uh, uh, equated with mental self-determination. So we think that since we're heading towards a world in which will be increasingly possible to um, alter our brain functions uh, or to enable access to our brain information, uh, then people should have the right to protect the information they do not want to share, uh, but also to actively uh, share and, and modify the brain uh, processes that they would like to respectively share or modify. <clears throat> and um, in the negative sense, Cognitive liberty uh, uh, means um, being able, uh, having the right to refuse unconsented intrusions uh, into our cognitive processing. Uh, so a simple example here, a concrete example would be uh, a right um, not to be coerced to use brain monitoring technology, which is not a sci-fi scenario actually the are state-backed companies in China that are already requiring uh, employees to wear uh, brain monitoring technology on the production line. Really? To, wow. Yes, to, to monitor their concentration levels in most cases and adjust the pace of production accordingly. Again, this is not entirely new. Like in the West, Amazon is being using uh, non-neural wearable technology uh, to monitor uh, employees um, in, in warehouses. Uh, this is taking surveillance or workplace surveillance to the next level because yeah, you're yeah, monitoring brain activity 
Directly. And I think cognitive liberty is also useful to um, regulate uh, or to govern our uh, interaction with artificial intelligence in brain-computer interfaces. So one thing that I, I mentioned before is that AI is revolutionizing the field of neurotechnology, um, and it's also revolutionizing brain-computer interfaces. Uh, we now have so-called neuroadaptive and closed-loop systems that embed, embed AI capabilities in the architecture of the BCI so that the AI components can make automated decisions. So for example, uh, there are BCIs used for people with epilepsy that can constantly monitor the flow of brain activity to detect anomalies. Uh, and then the algorithms in the machine can automatically either warn the patient uh, that a seizure is coming, which can be life-saving if the patient is driving or swimming, for example. Uh, and in some cases, they can even neuro-stimulate the brain of the patient automatically just based on the input data. So it's it's a closed-loop architecture. And you know, in the future, we can imagine AI algorithms that make automated decisions in our minds uh, also make decisions that can override our intentionality and volition. And I think that's where uh, cognitive liberty becomes relevant. Okay, I mean, wearable exercise um, watches and this sort of thing also comes into this, doesn't it? Because it, they're saying, oh, well, this can tell if you're having some sort of potentially fatal cardiac event, but it's not very good. And so how many people are being made anxious by this wearable device, you know, that um, they think is is there, you know, doing them good, really. But um, you, you also talk about mental privacy, your second one, which is interesting. I mean, we do so much online these days, repeatedly click OK to cookies, etc. And our preferences, interests, spending, travel, everything is tracked with our consent. And I think Zuckerberg even said privacy is outmoded these days. I mean, how might neurotech take this mental privacy issue even further? <clears throat> I, I think that you're right. So I don't think that mental privacy is entirely independent from the privacy issues that we're facing today. Uh, if you look at the last 30, 40 years, privacy has been constantly eroding. Digital technologies have diminished and shrunk our privacy in relation to a lot of domains, uh, including our mental information. So you know, social media platforms are already utilizing psychographic information uh, to classify people according to certain psycho psychographic profiles and use artificial intelligent algorithms to predict and sometimes also to manipulate their preferences. What does so, that mean exactly psycho psychographic? What do you mean by that? Well, for uh, example, social media companies are uh, interested to know whether... Uh, what kind of uh, psychological characteristics you have so that they can classify you in a specific group and target you with uh, uh, with micro-targeted advertising that is designed to be more effective based on the characteristics you have. So yeah, you know, yeah. if they can classify you and uh, realize that you are uh, tend to be a rather fearful person, um, then, you know, they could sell that information to companies that have an interest to uh, make uh, targeted ads uh, that exploit the emotion of fear. 
So, for example, a lot of political parties on the right wing spectrum that want to scare people based on, you know, crimes performed by immigrants, um, they want to target them uh, towards those people who have certain po political characteristics and certain psychological characteristics, rather, such as a greater tendency to experience fear in relation to information. But uh, so men mental privacy is, in my view, the next step. Um, that's when privacy is eroding not around us, but inside us. Because even though social media companies are trying to mine the, the gold mine of the human mind, they still face a lot of limitations because they only can do that based on uh, proxy information, such as the information that we externalize through our behavior. And this implies that people always retain the ability to decide which information they want to share with the outside world and which information they want to seclude. Sometimes, you know, they can be tricked and they can inadvertently share information, but still, you know, we retain this ability. You know, I can decide not to post anything on Instagram. I can decide not to uh, write anything on Twitter uh, and so on. But with mental privacy, the problem is way more complex because once we have uh, record uh, devices that can record brain activity continuously, um, you know, brain activity is not just conscious activity, uh, it's to a large extent below our threshold of conscious awareness. Um, so we can really um, inadvertently share information about the inner workings of our minds or our mental preferences. Uh, in ways that are completely that we are completely unaware of, and uh, this is a problem. I think, in my view, from a human rights perspective, because uh, the privacy of our mental information is a fundamental requirement in order to exercise our freedom of thought. Um, um, a historian, Bagnell, who wrote a century ago a monumental book on freedom of thought, said it's a common saying that thoughts are free, uh, but as long as they can be secluded from the outside world. And I do agree with this view. What, what about mental integrity? What, what is what is that? Well, mental integrity is not a new right. So it's something that it's already codified international human rights law, for example, in the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. But it's not being interpreted in a literal sense so far. So we we have it's a counterpart of physical right, uh, physical integrity, and it's basically a right to prevent um, uh, harm uh, to the mental and cognitive domain. So you mentioned brain jacking before, or brain hacking. You know, once we connect brains to computers, we also make them vulnerable to all the vulnerabilities that computers have. So computers are vulnerable to hacking, phishing, data theft, yeah. uh, and so will brains uh, if they will be connected to computers. And so mental integrity should prevent this kind of harms. Okay, and then psychological continuity is your last one, isn't it? Yes, so you know we are not just functioning minds, we are also minds with a personal identity. You know, uh, I'm Marcello, you're Ken, um, we identify as the same person over time. And we do this because we have some sense of uh, continuity uh, over our mental state so that our mental states are a kind of chain 
of continuity over time. But what happens if either AI components or exogenous perturbation by other uh, parties uh, breaks this uh, chain of continuity into our mental states? Uh, this is something that has happened, for example, uh, with patients who underwent neurostimulation procedures such as DBS and had side effects, uh, so off-target effects that generated novel personality traits that were not present before. And in a recent case with my colleagues in Australia, uh, Fred Gilbert and Mark Cook, we also observed the case of a patient who had to undergo a forced explantation of a device because the company that was producing that neural implant went bankrupt. So they could no longer maintain the device. Right. And so she had to have the device explanted. And also she reported this interruption in the continuity of her sense of self. And right. she was no longer identifying as the same person after the device was explanted. So psychological continuity is basically uh, uh, the principle that should govern how uh, people and, and and make sure that people can retain uh, some control and continuity over our personal identity despite these exogenous changes. I mean, I know that deep brain stimulation. It, the, the the theory is it goes to a very specific part of your brain, and the, therefore that doesn't. So particularly for things like tremor or for Parkinson's disease. But I know there've been reports of. Uh, you know, it, it's naive really to think that it's such an interconnected organ is is not going to have knock on effects, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Um, but wow. So it's, it's it's such an interesting area. But I mean, last month in the UK, we had this international summit on AI safety and um, the US uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, said that she and the president believed everyone has a moral, ethical, social duty to make sure that AI is adopted and advanced in a way that protects the public for potential harm and ensures that everyone is able to enjoy its benefits. Quote. Um, there are also places stick to responsible and ethical use of AI, even for military aid. Well, obviously, there's going to be an election in a, a year, so heaven knows what, what will happen with that. But, I mean, are you pushing an open door here? Is is the it, I know even in 2019, Ursula von der Leyen's uh, proposed legislation to address human and ethical implications of, of AI. Um, where, how near are we to having some sort of like international chemical weapons convention type thing about AI. I mean, that came up in the 90s, I think. Well, we're still missing uh, either national or international framework on AI. We have a plenty of ethical guidelines. Uh, my colleagues and I have reviewed them uh, on behalf of the Council of Europe uh, a few couple of years ago, and we retrieved more than 110 uh, guidelines, but these are all soft law instruments, so they are not legally binding. Uh, what we're missing is a legally binding framework on AI. Uh, the AI. The European Union is attempting to move in that direction with the EU AI Act, and most recently it seems that also the United States want to go in that direction. But <clears throat> this will take time, um, and we are not there yet. In terms of military uses, uh, you're right. We have our, our International Convention on Biological and Chemical Weapons, the so-called Geneva Conventions. Um, but the, again, these conventions are designed to regulate the use of um, things like uh, biotoxins uh, and their utilization in wars, but they make no mention of neurotechnology uh, and neuroelectronics. 
And of course, for obvious reasons, they also make no mention of artificial intelligence. Uh, and I do think that we need to have a public debate about what legit, what uses of AI and neurotechnology and the combination thereof. Because you know, I really want to emphasize that any neurotechnology today, any brain-computer interface today, relies heavily on artificial intelligence. We need to discuss uh, which uses in the military domain are ethical, and it could also be that you know a responsible innovation framework is not enough. It could also be that certain military uses are uh, not acceptable under any condition, um, and uh, the. Uh, United Nation has uh, an institute for disarmament research, the ONIDIR, that is actually exploring exactly this interface. And I had the privilege to participate in two of the of their hearings, and they're trying to understand whether things like neurotechnology may require modifications to the existing conventions on chemical and biological weapons. Well, that's interesting, yeah, because it's amazing in a way that biological and, and chemical weapons, that there has been this consensus for so, I mean, since the First World War, virtually, isn't it, really? Um, that uh, at least it's possible, I guess, really. Um, but it, it it goes into so many aspects of society, particularly talking about China, you know, and, and where um, it's not a democratic regime. It's a, it's a different approach, albeit very successful uh, economically um, at the moment. And they're not, not used to that kind of individuality that in the West is is such a big deal, uh, perhaps. Yes. So the, the, there's definitely uh, going to be increasing societal acceptance. Um, and I, I think regulatory instruments should also be based on uh, on that information. They cannot be detached from public views. The problem, in my view, is that we do not have extensive research on public views on this technology so far. So we definitely also need to, to collect more data and have more research. And you don't know what you're agreeing to, even when you click OK to cookies, you're just tired of <laughs> trying to get on, don't you, really? I mean, that's a interesting yes uh, and you know there is plenty of evidence that shows that people accept cookies not based on the actual uh terms of service so they they accept or not accept based on how much in a rush they are uh and how trustworthy <laughs> they remotely perceive the website to be but not because they have actually read what their information is being used for and this is i think one of the reasons why consumer neurotechnology is tricky because you know, we know very well that people trade privacy for services. We do that all the time. You know, a couple of years ago, the most downloaded app in the world was this face app that was making people look old. Right. And, you know, and people were uploading extremely sensitive information like passport level, high quality headshots wow. that could be used to train artificial neural networks for face recognition. Uh, with servers uh, in a quite uh, managed by a quite obscure company in Russia, and still, um, like millions of people did that uh, just for minor entertainment, you know. And I think with consumer neurotechnology, you know, we could easily have the same thing. People will trade their brain data uh, if a company is smart enough to you know trade the privacy of their mental information for a merely entertaining service so i really appreciate you taking the time to do the podcast it's been absolutely fantastic
I was pleased to chat with you. Thank you Thank very you much. Thank you so much. Wow, what a fantastic guest and a great discussion. Um, I will put a link to a paper by Marcello in the episode notes. Thank you again to Professor Marcello Ienka for coming on the Brainland Podcast and thank you for listening.